Welcome. It's good to, good to see everybody here this morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 17. And we are going to be um, looking at the idea of just the power of well-placed faith. Faith that is placed in the right object, and that's Jesus. And faith that's growing, that, that starts small, but like a mustard seed, grows. You know, faith is, is an incredibly important thing in the Christian life, and it actually brings power to the Christian life. Hebrews 11.6 just says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And that he rewards those who seek him. So the, the foundation of faith is believing that God is real and that God is good and that God loves you and that he's going to reward you when you're faithfully serving him. So this morning, uh, we're going to be addressing a passage in scripture that's very popular. We've all heard of it, the faith that moves mountains. Uh, have you guys heard of that, the whole thing of moving mountains? So I got to tell you just a, a little bit of a personal story in the sense of faith moving mountains. So actually, at one point in my life, I was in charge of moving some mountains. So um, at a church that I was in, um, we, had, we had this church and, and we needed to move these mountains. And for years, we just couldn't, like years just went by and we could not move these mountains. It was one regulatory thing after another. And finally, some people came to me and they just said, um, hey, Raj, would you be willing to take this on? And so these are the two mountains that we needed to move. We had like a bunch of property that, wasn't un that was unusable. So it was like, can you take these mountains and can you move them somewhere and, and get us more space? And so, um, you know, I remember walking outside and looking at these mountains and thinking about this verse and there's so much regulation and there was a city and there was homeowners associations and all these things getting in the way. And I just thought, you know, what if I just stand here and pray that these mountains move into this valley in the back of our property? And what would the city say if they showed up and the, the mountains were just there? It was like, you know, what would they do? And uh, anyway, the Lord was good, and he didn't answer my prayer that way. But we did eventually, we were eventually able to move those mountains. And uh, it was amazing because as easy as it would have been for me to just pray and then for God to have moved those mountains... All the things that happened as we talked to the city, as we talked to our neighbors, as we worked out all those things, as we prayed about all the details that it took to see that happen was just amazing. And the reality is that if I could explain to you all the details, God did move those mountains. It wasn't us. And it was just an amazingly powerful thing. But I thought about that. It's like, okay, wait, when the Bible says that if you pray with faith, these mountains will move. And, uh, and I thought a lot about that. And as I think about the scriptural examples, it's so important for us to understand all of scripture and to genuinely understand the power of faith, well-placed faith. But I also remember that the apostle Paul was um, sick and he prayed three times, God heal me, and God said no. I think about Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane three times praying, God, if I can avoid the cross, Lord, allow, allow this to pass. And God said no. And I think about the many personal examples that we have when we pray for things, and they don't happen the way we want them to. 
So in the context of those things, how do we understand this passage and the power of it? And I want to just tell you that that this, this passage is powerful, and in many cases, people pray things like, God, if it's your will, and, and we add that phrase because actually it's an expression of not trusting God. It's like, okay, God, will you heal this person? But I know they're probably not going to be healed, so Lord, if it's your will, and it probably is not your will. And it's like we, we throw this tag on for things that we're praying for or that we're trusting God for and really it is, it, it can at times be actually an expression of a lack of faith. And I think about one of the powerful Old Testament passages of well-placed faith. First, if we consider faith, you know, faith is trusting Jesus. Faith is trusting the real God. And if you have faith in anything else, it's actually not biblical faith. Um, there are a lot of people who just believe in the power of positive thinking. You know, faith in the faith itself is useless. Faith in a different God or faith in yourself is useless. Only faith that is well-placed, faith in Jesus is powerful and useful. So Jesus has to be the object. So one of the things I think about is, if you think about Daniel, have any of you guys hear the story of Daniel? And I think about the fact that in Israel, Israel's a disobedient nation, and God says, I have to punish you because you're disobedient, and I've sent all these prophets to talk to you, and you just continue in sin, and I've had enough. I'm sending, I'm going to raise up this wicked man who's brutal, and I'm sending your into, him into your area, and he's going to take you all as slaves and carry you off into Babylon. And so you, the amazing thing is that you see the powerful faith of four people. One of the things that I think about in the whole story of Daniel, you guys have heard of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've heard of the stories and the great things that God did. There were many people that were drug out of the nation of Israel, and we don't know any of their names. But these four teenagers probably junior high or high school, and, and I, you could get me going on that. Um, you know, we have such a low view of teenagers. Uh, you have to entertain g- teenagers. They'll eat ice cream, but they won't study the Bible. You know, they're just these, they're this rebellious, self-centered people that are, you know, sometime later they'll be committed to Christ. And, and we have such a low view of teenagers, and then often they live up to our low view of them. But here are some teenagers that God used incredibly. You know, faith um, started small. Um, The king told them in Daniel chapter 1 to eat some food that they weren't supposed to eat. And they just said, yeah, we don't want to eat the food. And God blessed them in that. And then they faced a situation where it was even more difficult. And I want to read this to you. It's it's Daniel chapter 3. So the story in chapter 3, I'm going to just read a few of the verses. And basically, Nebuchadnezzar makes this idol And he says, everybody has to bow down and worship it. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, no, I'm not doing that. Some people find out. They tell the king. He's so furious. And he just says to him, I'm going to give you another chance. And if you don't bow down and worship my idol, I am throwing you into a furnace. And, And he says to them specifically, well, actually, I'll just read it, Daniel 3.15. But if you do not worship... 
You shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Anytime anybody uh, threatens you with that in the phrase, it's kind of a good thing. It's like they want to take on God. And so this is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answer the king and they say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. So they just say, no, no, actually, God can save us from you. And then they go on and they say, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing there about to be thrown into a furnace. They know it's going to happen. And they look him in the eye and they say, God is going to save us. But they follow that up with another phrase and they say this in verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. See that last phrase is, is a phrase of if the Lord wills. Even in that, they're saying, we, we know God can save us. We know that he will save us. But even if he doesn't, we're going to obey. And that's because they have this recognition that they don't know everything. They are not God. They don't, they're not the ones calling the shots. They're not telling God what to do. And they're saying, we know this can happen. We believe it's going to happen. But even if it doesn't, we're willing to die. And so that is the confidence and the power that we should have in our faith. We shouldn't, you know, if the Lord wills, should not be this tag that we throw onto prayers because we don't actually believe God can or will answer those prayers. And so as you, as you think about this story, we're going to go through our passage and just think about it. Um, it's powerful. They had a well-placed faith. Their faith was persistent and it was growing. And their faith was informed by the context of everything that they read in Scripture, all the things that they had known, all the ways that they had seen God work. So this morning, we're going to look at two important things. The first is that faith empowers ministry. We're going to see a story of the disciples, and they're going to be doing ministry, and we're going to see the, the importance that faith has in the ministry that we have. And I want you to understand, that does include what happens at church, but that's every relationship you have. One of the things that we need to always remember is that as believers, we're the church. The church is not a building, it's us. And so everything that God calls you to do, your conversations with your neighbors, your relationship with your spouse, what you're doing with your kids, and when you teach Sunday school, and when you lead a Bible study, and when you do the things and you function as a Christian within the body of Christ, faith is what empowers those things. And the second thing that we're going to see is that faith provides strength in trials. When we're going through things that are confusing and difficult and that are not working out the way that we want them to work out or the way that we think they should work out, a faith in, in the loving, powerful God who has a plan that is better than ours, a faith in that God gets us through trials. And so that's what we're going to see. Let's jump in and let's read it. So Matthew chapter 17, verse 14, we'll just start reading there. And when they came to the crowd, 
A man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he has seizures and he is suffering terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And then he says, bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, and they said, why couldn't we, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. You know, when we, when we think about that, and you think about what happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the exodus of Egypt, and just all the things that happened in the Old Testament, um, moving a mountain was not more significant than all the things that God had done and that we have a record of in the Old Testament and all the things that we see that God did in the New Testament. So here's uh, some things for us to consider. And the first one is this. You know, as we think about this, we need to recognize that Jesus is the point of this story. It's actually not the disciples. It's Jesus. He's the Lord. He is the one who has compassion. Jesus is the one with the power. You know, he's, he calls the shots. He cares. And that is actually a key in people coming to Christ. It's like if people were going and re relying on the disciples, they were disappointed. But one of the things I love is this man goes to the disciples, and they can't get it done, and then they go to Jesus. Then he goes to Jesus, and that's, that's an incredibly important thing for us to consider. So when we just uh, think about this context, so this crowd, who's a part of the crowd? Well, we find out in Mark that this crowd that was coming to Jesus, it was the rest of the disciples. It was the scribes who were arguing with the disciples, and they run up to Jesus, and Jesus actually says, hey, what are you guys arguing about? And that's what happens. That's kind of the situation. And then this man comes up to him, and he kneels before him. And he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. He's kneeling before him. He's recognizing who Jesus is. He is addressing him as Lord, and he is asking Jesus for mercy. And one of the things we find out in Luke is that this was this man's only child. You know, I think about all the jokes that we've told our kids. You know, it's like, hey, we got three more, so if we lose you, it's all right. And uh, usually, anyway, I won't, I won't get into the story of why we would say things like that to our kids. They're perfect. You know, just the parents are kind of a little weird. But, <laughs> but you think about this man. It's his only son. And you think about uh, just the focus in this whole story on Jesus, I'm reminded of Hebrews 2.17, which talks about the fact that Jesus is a merciful high priest. He knows how we feel and he cares about us. And we have direct access to God himself. We don't go through people. 
There's nobody that stands between us and God. There's no person that we say, oh, you're in control of God's mercy and God's grace. Will you dispense it to me? There is nobody who stands between us and God. And in everything we go through, hey, God gives us leaders. He gives us elders. He gives us pastors. He gives people to encourage us and teach us and help us. But none of those people stand between us and God. We have direct access to Jesus. And in the same way this man goes to Jesus, you and I need to think about our life in that way. I've thought about people that I know that at the end of their life, they're calling for some religious figure because they're afraid about the future and and they want somebody to come and here, give me some communion. Let me drink this thing. And they're trusting this person wearing funny clothes and giving them these things and and telling them you're going to be okay. And ultimately, no person can tell us that we're going to be okay. When we are in those moments of trial, when we are in those moments of difficulty, it's God that we need to look to. I've had people call me and say, I'm going to die probably this week. Will you bring me some things? Will you help me? And because I'm a pastor, they want me to come stand there and tell them they're okay. And every time I go, I love them and, and I encourage them. But I point them to Jesus because me telling them they're okay doesn't make them okay. God doesn't give us that option. And then it goes on. If you look at verse 17, you see this, or verse 15, you see this man's love for his son. He's describing this, and he says he has seizures, and he is suffering terribly. You know, in this passage, we see see the desperation of this dad, and we see Jesus' compassion. Now, one of the things that we find out from Mark and Luke, because this, this story is told in the Gospel of Mark and Luke, but this man is mute. This, this child, he's mute. He can't talk. He's deaf. He cannot hear. He, he cries out sometimes, um, just this desperate inner struggle of pain. He falls on the ground. He foams in his mouth. He grinds his teeth. He becomes rid, rigid. Sounds a lot like epilepsy. And... Um, it also goes on in these other passages and just talks about how this kid is just beaten and physically shattered and bruised. And it says that he hardly ever leaves him. So this demon is just oppressing and attacking this child. And so this dad is just looking at this. And we see that Jesus actually says to the dad when he runs up, he says, not in in Matthew, but in the, uh, the other gospel accounts, he says, how long has this been happening? And he says, since this kid was a boy. Now imagine that you're a parent and you're seeing this happen to your kid from the time he's a, he's a little kid. And it's just this ongoing thing, just the desperation, the heart sore, the love. You think about how hard it is to take care of kids. I see some kids sometimes around here, and it reminds me of one of our kids. I won't point Jackson out, but it reminds me of one of our kids that was so hard to take care of. It was never happy. And I just think about um, just the challenge of that and, and what, how, how, what a small thing those challenges were with what this dad was going through. And so he's, he's been seeing this. And then in verse 15, it goes on and it says, for often he falls into the fire and he falls into the water. You know, this is a, a powerful reminder for us as we think about Jesus, we think about life, we think about what these passages teach us about God and Satan. God loves you, Satan hates you. This, this demon's trying to kill this kid. He's harming this kid. And what's crazy is the Bible tells us this, John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. I just got to ask you, is that the view? 
that people have of the world. God loves you. Everything God tells you is best for you. Satan wants to destroy you. Like think about the, the lies that Satan told in the Garden of Eden. Just eat this fruit, you'll be better. Uh, everything will be better for you. You'll be wise, you'll be like God. How'd that turn out? And when you think about um, Job, the moment God removes his hand of protection from Job, the devastation that happens in his life. Now let's think about all the loving, wise things that God tells us about who we are. About just, let's just make a list of things. Who should you marry? Should you be sexually active? Are you a man or a woman? Do you decide that or does God decide that? Like, let's just take our culture. All the things that, the, that our culture tells us. Oh, no, the, the church is there to oppress you and to harm you, and religion just wants to control you. But if you really want to have fun, if you really want to be happy and satisfied, ignore what God says. And do these other things, they'll be better for you. And get these windows, if you actually read scripture, if you actually look at how all these things work out, and there's plenty of examples all through the Bible of people who say, God, I know you say that, but I think my way's better. And how'd that turn out? And so we see that all throughout scripture. And uh, we see that, that Satan hates us, wants to destroy us. And a lot of times... A lack of faith in God for people is reflected in just saying, yeah, God, I, I know you say this is best, but I think my idea is better. And that's how a lack of faith is expressed. You know, uh, James chapter 5, verse 16 just says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. You know, uh, a faith, a humble trust in God is powerful and it results in a righteous life. Look at verse 16. It says, and, and, and I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus said, answered, oh, faithless, twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed immediately. You know, it's um, to see the power of faith in ministry. His disciples could have cast out this demon. And we find out in verse 21, if you're using an ESV, it's not in your Bible, right? It goes from 20 to 22. If you have a New American Standard, it's in italics. Um, and actually what happened with verse 21 is this is one of the things, this is a side note for all of you. But, you know, when, uh, when people were copying the Bible, a lot of times they made mistakes as they were copying it. So we believe that, that God inspired the Bible, that it is inerrant, that it is 100% accurate in the original writings. And then what happened is as people were copying it, sometimes a person had been reading and memorizing the book of Mark, and they copied a line from Mark into, into Matthew. And that's actually what happened with verse 21. But when you study it and you do all the text comparisons, you actually realize that that verse is from Mark. It's not actually supposed to be in Matthew. And the way God wrote Matthew is the way we wanted it. It was perfect. It was accurate. It was exactly the way he intended it. And here's the great thing for us to understand. Can we have confidence in God's word? I mean, this is a different sermon. But the Bible you're holding in front of you is God's word. And every single place that there's a debate about should this word be here or not be here, just look at your marginal notes. It's right in there. 
It's, in te- it's, it's, it's italicized. It's, it's obvious. Actually, the Bible in some ways, the fact that it's been copied so many times is more accurate than if we had the originals. Because if you only had an original, somebody could change it. But what happens is when you copy something a thousand times, even if somebody changes it in every single copy, not everybody changes the exact same thing. Not everybody makes the exact same mistake. And so when you compare all the thousands of copies, we can know exactly what God wrote. And anywhere there's a question, well, you just look at your marginal notes. It says it there. So anyway, that was a long side note. But these are important things for us to understand. And so he comes to this father, and, and I want to just show you the, the, the conversation that happens between Jesus and this man's father. So Jesus is asking him about what's happening, and he just says this, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. And then look at this phrase. This dad says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You know, that, that request, do you see the doubt? If you can do anything. And Jesus actually points it out. We should not have faith like that. Jesus actually points it out in his conversation. He says, if you can. <laughs> do you see that there? If you can do anything. If you can. Jesus emphasizes his doubt. And then he goes on and he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. This is this is in Mark chapter 9. And immediately the father cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. That, that was John Mayer's favorite verse. And I, I never forget that. I was reading about him when I was thinking about coming to the church, and that just stood out to me so powerfully. I believe. Help my unbelief. He loves his kid. He knows that his kid needs help. And, and he wants to believe, but he's having trouble. And you know what you see? Even faith. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, what does it say? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Even our faith is something that God gives us. And, but you see with this man, there's this commitment. There's a personal decision. I'm going to believe. He's committed to do it personally, but he also recognizes that he needs God's help. And that's, that's the way that we all should pray. And so he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd that came running, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Man, that's amazing. So when we see this, um, we see that the, the power of faith in Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, For truly I say to you, verse 20, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. You know, that's true. When God says that, faith is powerful. And the things that we know is that um, this is a, a crazy thing about prayer. Um, you know, God always answers prayer of faithful believers. I want you to think about some of the things that the Bible tells us about prayer and answer to prayer. So one of them is my favorite verse. It's in Romans 8, 26, and you've, you've heard it. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. 
So when we pray, we don't actually even know how to pray, but the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, one of the members of the Trinity, prays for us with groanings too deep for words. Have you ever thought about that? Lord, I really want to marry this person. Please let me marry that person. And the Holy Spirit says, um, God, that would actually be a bad thing for him, so help that not to work out. God, I really want to get this job. And the Holy Spirit says, yeah, if he gets that job, that's not going to be good for him, so help him not to get that job. Help him to get this job over here instead. Like, have you ever thought about the fact that the Holy Spirit is a filter on our prayers, praying for us the way God wants us to pray? Or James chapter 4, verse 2, where it says, you don't have because you don't ask. Again, he emphasizes, you don't have because you're not even asking. And then he goes on and he says, and you do not receive. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own pleasures. You ever heard people say, whatever you have faith for, you can have. If you want a, if you want a Mercedes, just believe it, pray for it, it'll be there. You'll have it. Oh, I want this business. I want to be rich. I want to win the lottery. I want this thing over here. And you have these health wealth people just saying, just pray and just believe. Well, James 4 says, if you do that, you'll definitely not get what you're praying for. Or John 5, 14, that just clarifies it this way. And this is the confidence we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know if he hears us that he'll grant our request. See, in the context of Scripture, in the context of watching all the people that pray, we understand the incredible power of faith. But we don't misunderstand it in a way that life is confusing when things don't work out the way we wanted them to. You know, that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as evidence of that. So here's the second thing that we see in this passage, and we're going to really see two examples of it, is that faith provides strength in the midst of trials. See, when we're going through difficulties, when life is confusing, when things don't turn out the way we want it to, it's a trust, a confidence, and a faith in God that allows us to get through that. So let's just look at this example in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 17. And they were gathering in Galilee, and Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And when the disciples heard this, were they excited? Were they amazed? Were they, yes, that's the Old Testament said in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was going to come bear our sins. And in Psalm 16, it talked about how the Holy One's not going to um, undergo decay. So like the three years of, or the three days of, until the body starts to decay. And were they so excited? Yeah, the Old Testament told us this was going to happen. We've been excited. We've been looking for this. Were they excited about it? No, they were greatly distressed. This was an utter nightmare for them. And um, the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 9, verse 45, that they didn't understand it because the Holy Spirit was actually concealing it from them. And it's because God's plan was for them to not fully understand this. And then later, the Holy Spirit brought all these things back to mind. But they were greatly distressed. See, if they had faith, if they had confidence, uh, that would not have been their response. But you know what? Sometimes um, when things don't work out the way we want, when we face earthly tragedies, isn't it overwhelming? Isn't it incredibly difficult for us? 
And sometimes we beat up on the disciples, but we live this all the time in our own life. It just feels different because it's us. It's our tragedy. Here's the crazy thing. Jesus going to the cross was the greatest gift. It met the, it, it, it met the greatest need the disciples had. Like think about 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. It just says, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined. That's what God has prepared for those who love him. And you know all of that is possible because Jesus went to the cross. Sometimes the things that are our greatest nightmare are actually God's intention for the greatest blessing in our life. So the disciples are confused. And then the second one, strength for trials. How about when you can't meet your own needs? And there's, there's a lot to this story but this next section, it's kind of amazing what happens. It goes on in verse 24. And when they came up to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And just a few quick things about this. This is a temple tax. Now, if you're in a kingdom and they're levying taxes, who doesn't pay taxes? Okay, the rich people, <laughs> all right. All right, rich people don't have to pay taxes. All right, not necessarily. I mean, you know, we won't have that debate right now. But um, when a king is taxing his kingdom, who doesn't pay tax? The king doesn't pay tax. And so think about this. Jesus is, they're asking Jesus to pay a temple tax. Like Jesus is the king. This is the temple and they're saying, pay a tax. And so Jesus is just going to explain that he doesn't owe the tax, and Peter doesn't owe the tax. And so he goes on, and he just he says, and, uh, and so they go, they go to Peter. Does your, Peter, does your teacher pay the tax? And he says in verse 25, yes. And then he came into the house, and Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From who do the, whom do the kings of the earth take a toll or a tax, from their sons or from others? And then Peter answers, and he says, from others. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take, a f take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take and give that to them for you and for, your, for me and for yourself. So a few things um, in this. Um, you know, Jesus is teaching Peter about this and, and he says in order to not give offense was Jesus ever shy in offending the Pharisees or the Sadducees or anybody else I mean, when you read about his ministries he's always ripping into them but you know he always rips into them about spiritual things and I think there's a significant lesson here Jesus says let's not offend him about the tax we'll offend him when it comes to their spiritual well-being like in our culture, what are we willing to fight with people about? Our neighbors, what kind of debates do we get in on social media about politics, about how this is happening or about how that's happening? And do we say in our relationships, what we care most about is people's spiritual condition, not the way they necessarily view the world. And so if I offend somebody, I want to offend them over something that's spiritually, eternally significant. And Jesus here says to Peter, yeah, we don't owe this tax, but just pay it. And then the second thing is Jesus is poor. Like this whole idea of everybody being rich, you know, if you're a Christian, you're going to be rich. Jesus, when people wanted to follow him, he just says the son of man doesn't even have anywhere to lay his head. He didn't even have a bed. He didn't even have a house. He was homeless. And here they're asking him for this little tax. 
they don't have the money to pay. And sometimes in our life, we struggle to deal with those kinds of things. And Jesus just gives Peter these simple instructions. Go throw, um, go throw a hook into the sea, pull out the first fish, open up its mouth. There'll be the tax for you and me. And so what does Peter do? It doesn't record it, but Peter went, he threw in, caught the fish, and paid the tax. And, and I just want you guys to know, in the same way that Jesus met their needs, is the same way that God will meet your needs. You will always have exactly what God wants you to have. And so as we consider this story in this passage, faith is powerful, well-placed faith, a faith that's growing. What an incredible thing for us to think these things through. And ultimately, um, we're going to take some time right now to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I want you to think about your faith in Jesus. And in the same way that the disciples and that, that, that this man needed to go directly to Jesus, I want you to know that your salvation and everything about your life is found in Jesus. John 14, 6 says, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the point. And what Jesus did when he died on the cross, you know, Jesus does provide for your life but he actually provided for you in a far more significant way. He provided for your eternal salvation, which actually puts everything in life in perspective. Look at 1 Peter 2, 24. It says, he himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Same Jesus who died for you, holds you, and keeps you. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember that Jesus died on the cross for us. It's because of what he did that we are able to live. I want to just read this passage. And you could take your, your, uh, your elements, and there's a little thin plastic on the top. That's how you get to the bread, if any of you guys struggle with that. But as we do this, we need to... Just remember what Jesus did. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we eat this bread, we remember that Jesus physically died. Let's eat. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink. Jesus, thank you that our salvation comes from your death on the cross, that you paid a price that we could never pay. And Lord, we know that that's not just a myth. That's something that really happened. And that, Lord, you rose from the dead and you are coming back. And God, you didn't just save us eternally. You save us, you keep us, you hold us. All of our life is in your hands. And Lord, we are just so thankful for the message of salvation that has saved us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to proclaim that 
that we would tell other people, that we would invite others into a relationship with you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.